It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 168 for November 8th, 2009. Today's lead subject is Boca. Boca is a term that's used to refer to an out-of-focus area. It can be in the foreground or in the background of a photograph. It comes from the Japanese word bokeh, which means blur or haze, or bokeh-aji, which means the blur quality. Thanks to Wikipedia for that information. You'll see the actual Japanese terms on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll also see the effect there. Bokeh is an important aesthetic quality because it separates the subject of a photograph from the background. Bokeh is produced by a lens with a large aperture, but lenses with large apertures cost large sums of money. You can pay thousands of dollars for a lens that does great bokeh, or you can spend $200 for Alien Skin's bokeh and keep the lenses you already own. This may seem counterintuitive. I mean, you'd think that you'd want everything in the photograph to be sharp, and indeed, sometimes you do. But in a lot of cases, you don't, because if everything is sharp... Everything gets equal attention. If you have a person in the foreground, trees in the background, and the trees are sharp, your eye will wander from the person. So you want to keep the trees in the background soft. And by the way, when I said a good bokeh lens would cost you thousands of dollars, I wasn't kidding. Take, for example, a 400mm f2.8 lens from Nikon. It costs $9,016.95 from B&H Photo and Video in New York City. Instead of making a donation at the TechBiter Worldwide website, you might want to just buy that lens and have it shipped to me. I'd love to have it, and I have thoughtfully included a link to the B&H website for you. On the other hand, I would be much more likely to buy something like a Tamron 200-500mm zoom lens. Its maximum aperture is f5, but it only costs a little less than $900. Besides the price difference, the Tamron zoom lens covers 200 through 500 millimeters, and it weighs less than 3 pounds. That 400-millimeter Nikon lens weighs more than 10 pounds. For $9,000, I could get great bokeh by using the Nikon lens at its widest aperture. The Tamron lens, because it's a slower lens, won't provide the same bokeh, but I can create my own with Alien Skin's plug-in for Photoshop. So to figure out just how well bokeh works, I needed an image that could use a little good bokeh. I started looking through the images I had available and found one from the Columbus Zoo's Media Center. It's a photo that's interesting, but the background is very busy, very distracting. There are shiny metal cages back there, and they pull the eye to that part of the image. It seemed like a pretty good image for testing. So I opened the image in Photoshop, and because Photoshop has its own masking tools, masking is not included in bokeh. My first order of business would be to select the areas of the photo that I wanted to keep in sharp focus. And if you check the TechBiter Worldwide website for today's program, www.techbiter.com, you'll find it's an image of a man holding a rather large white bird. Photoshop has an excellent tool called the Quick Select tool that is great for making selections. Once I had the selection made, I converted it to an alpha channel, known as an alpha mask. Then it was time to call on Alien Skin's bokeh. There are three tabs on the interface. On the first, you select the lens type that you want to use. If you're not sure which one to use, just click down through the list until you find the one that looks right to you. 
I've mentioned in previous articles about photography that photography is part science and part art. The art part is more important. When the image looks right to you, the image is right for you. The next tab allows you to select, among other things, the strength of the bokeh effect. In this case, I decided to increase it a bit. As with other Alien Skin programs, the preview screen can show the entire preview image, or it can split the image vertically, horizontally, or diagonally. The third tab is where you can add a vignette if you want one. A vignette is typically a darkening around the edges of the image. It can be a standard vignette like that, or it can darken the out-of-focus area. That's an interesting idea. I selected that. Then I clicked the OK button, Bokeh did its thing, and it returned me to Photoshop with a new layer containing the modified image. The bird and the zoo employee were then in sharp focus, the background no longer a distraction. But I thought maybe the effect was a bit too strong. This was, after all, my first attempt in using the program, and I did change a lot of the default settings. If you think the effect you have is a bit too strong, you can, of course, just do it over again. That's easy enough to do. Delete the one layer that Boca created. Go back and have it create another layer. You've saved the alpha channel mask, so all you need to do is repeat until you get it the way you like it. Or if you think the effect is just a little bit too strong, you can modify the settings for the Boca layer. I increased the transparency just a bit and modified the fill slightly. For a first effect, it's okay. I think I got the effect a little too strong even at the end, though. And I'm not entirely certain that I like darkening the entire background. There's a window behind the man. It ends up creating sort of an unnatural halo that I find distracting. So my next attempt would probably eliminate the vignette entirely or make it a traditional vignette that affects only the corners. Even if it's not perfect, the result is a significant improvement over the image I started with. The eye is no longer pulled back to the metal cages in the background. And after all, that's the goal I had when I started. In search of additional images that I could apply the bokeh effect to, I took the camera one day to High Banks Metro Park. I was using an inexpensive telephoto lens. Even one of these lenses, when focused on a close object, will create a good natural bokeh. You'll see an example of that. It's a very close-up image of just a leaf. The background is entirely out of focus. I had used a 300 to 500 millimeter zoom lens at its maximum extension, and I was relatively close to the leaf. But if I'm not as close to the leaf, or the focal length isn't as great, the background will remain somewhat in focus, perhaps more in focus than I would like. So this seemed like a good image to apply bokeh to. What I had to mask was just the leaf and the long, thin stem. Again, thanks to Photoshop's Quick Select tool, that was really pretty easy. Then I applied Alien Skin's bokeh filter, which rendered the background soft, and kept the leaf and the stem sharp. You'll have to check the TechBiter Worldwide website to actually see that. As I was leaving, I decided to take a picture of the High Banks Metro Park sign. And what I found in the background were utility poles, wires, a bright orange truck. Not good. Alien Skin's bokeh effect quickly fixed those problems. After getting the color right, I needed to mask the part of the image that I wanted to stay in sharp focus. Those areas included the sign, everything on the plane with the sign, and everything in the foreground. Yes, I decided to keep the foreground in focus. I tried letting the foreground blur, and it just didn't look natural to me. I also added some feathering so that there wouldn't be a sharp line between the part of the image that's in focus and the part of the image that's out of focus. Once that was complete, I handed the image off to Boca and got the result that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. A final example I tried uses my new cache for Clunker's Honda Fit. 
The two most challenging subjects for photographers are glass and shiny metal. That image, of course, has both. So I had a picture of my car with the background in focus. It's an okay snapshot, but you'll probably keep looking at the swing set that's over at the right. And no matter how hard I tried, I have to admit the masking isn't perfect. But the overall image is a lot better because the viewer's interest will be held by the car, not the background objects. A professional photographer working on an image for publication would take a lot more time to get the masking exactly right. The bottom line on Alien Skin Boca, four cats as good as catnip, convert your basic lens into a $9,000 lens with Alien Skin Boca. It's another winner from the creative folks at Alien Skin. Just as the Columbus Zoo is the number one zoo in the nation, Alien Skin produces some of the greatest plugins for Photoshop. Sports photographers, wedding photographers, and amateur photographers will all find something to love in Boca. You can check it out at the Alien Skin website. You'll find a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And another reason to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website this week is Chris Orwig. I'll tell you who he is in just a minute, but first a little background. Digital photography offers a lot of big advantages. The perceived cost per picture is one. In fact, the more pictures you take, the less each one costs. No film costs are involved, no processing. You pay only for prints when you make prints, and you probably don't do that very often. This may encourage you to try different techniques, faster and slower shutter speeds, larger and smaller apertures, a variety of elevations and angles, additional expressions, intentional camera movement, and other things. But another big advantage is speed. And by speed, I mean you don't have to wait days or even hours to see the results. You can remember what you were doing and what you were thinking when you pressed the shutter release. As a result, this can teach you to be a better photographer. But there's more. Attitude is a big part of photography. I've been watching a series of videos on lynda.com, the well-known online training site. The videos have been by Chris Orwig, a faculty member of Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, California. In an introduction to one section of the video, Orwig discussed the importance of capturing a lot of images and then editing to call the ones that aren't superior. That's the difference, he says, between professionals who are willing to throw away the bad ones and amateurs who tend to keep them and even beat themselves up because of them. You may throw away 50 images and keep 10, but the 10 you keep will be remarkable. I asked for permission from lynda.com to share the audio of that section with you. And here it is, Chris Orwig. It was Igor Stravinsky, the classical composer, who said, to know how to discard, as the gambler says, that is a great technique of selection. And that is really one of the items that separates a good photographer from a great photographer. If you look at an amateur per se, they don't know how to edit, right? They don't know how to determine which image is best. There really is an art and a craft to editing. And a lot of times what happens to the amateur is they just get a little bit overwhelmed. Well, pros get overwhelmed as well, but they can somehow handle the stress better, right? That's what makes a pro a pro. They can deal with the pressure. They can handle that and see through all of that. Because here's what happens. You shoot some photos, let's say up here in the mountains, and you're thinking, oh, this is so beautiful. And so I capture a few images, but then I go back and I open them up in the Adobe Bridge. Yet as you look at them, you're just devastated. Oh, that one's not very good. That one, that one's not very good. And the photos don't capture your experience of the event. They're, they're not quite good enough. And you keep seeing these photos that aren't good. And then you see one that's good, but you're not really sure of it. And why? Well, because you've seen photos that are, aren't very good. Maybe they're bad. And then it's kind of hard to find the keeper. Or then maybe you say, hey, these are the keepers. But then you remember all those bad photos. And you think, hey, those bad photos invalidate these good photos. I don't really know what I'm doing. These aren't very good. 
But what you have to do is say, okay, yeah, that image isn't any good. It didn't quite capture my experience. Okay, fine, but I'm going to find something here. I'm going to search for that image. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep digging. I have to know how to discard. And then typically what you want to do is you start with this big mass of images, and then you edit it down, and then you edit it down, and then you edit it down. And by the time you begin this editing process, narrowing, narrowing your selection, you come up with, let's say, 10 keepers, then you're like, wow, those keepers are really good. Yet... What happens to the amateurs, they say, yeah, those were good, but the other 40, they weren't very good. Therefore, that kind of invalidates these 10. Well, no way. That doesn't invalidate those. You have to have that vision. You have to have that kind of strength of character to see beyond the images that perhaps aren't so good. This is the same thing that's true in most arts or, or anything that's a craft. So if you want to make your images better, if you want to get better at the art and craft of photography, spend more time editing and one of the things that I think you'll discover is that as you get better at editing, you'll all of a sudden become a better photographer. Now, did you actually become a better photographer? Well, I don't really know. Perhaps it's just you learned how to find and discover those photographs, and then that taught you how to actually shoot. Because the next time you came up to the mountains and you were looking around, you would start to begin to identify what was a potential keeper because you were thinking through that whole process. That's Chris Orwig, faculty member at Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, photographer, interactive designer, and educator on the importance of editing your photographs. Sometimes people send questions. Sometimes I have answers. Occasionally, the answers even have something to do with questions. And once in a while, an answer is actually right. So let's see how I do this week on three questions. M.M. sent me a note and said he'll be switching to Roadrunner this Thursday. I have SBC, AT&T, now. I use Thunderbird, but switched to Yahoo for now. But I want to go back to Thunderbird when I get Roadrunner. My question is, how do I transfer all of my AT&T Thunderbird email to Yahoo so they'll not be lost when I cancel AT&T? Then, how do I transfer all the email from Yahoo to my new Thunderbird account under Roadrunner? I'm assuming you have an AT&T address now and that you've set Thunderbird up to download your messages from AT&T's server to your computer. If that's the case, you're golden because your AT&T messages are already on your computer. All you'll need to do is change the POP3 and SMTP servers from what you used for AT&T to the servers that Roadrunner tells you to use. The Roadrunner messages will then be added to your existing AT&T messages. If you haven't yet downloaded the messages from the AT&T server, you've set Thunderbird up to be, for example, an IMAP client, then you'll need to convert it to POP3 and download the messages before Thursday. That leaves the Yahoo messages. Yahoo is a webmail application, but you should be able to set Thunderbird to connect to it by specifying the POP3 servers as pop.mail.yahoo.com and specifying the username and password you use with Yahoo. Keyword there is should, but this should add the Yahoo messages to those already on your computer. The final step then will be on Thursday when Roadrunner's techs set up your computer. Make sure they are aware you want to use Thunderbird and tell them they should just change your existing AT&T account to work with Roadrunner's email, POP, and SMTP servers. For Columbus, the Roadrunner server should be pop-server.columbus.rr.com and smtp-server.columbus.rr.com. Next question. 
I hope to establish my own website. I had every intention to do the free thing because I have little money. I don't have fancy graphics or a fancy package, so I don't have too much to put in a website. But believe at least an informational, well-written page on the use of my product as well as the story behind it will lend some credibility. In one of your articles, you stated that it's probably better not to have a website if it's not going to be a good one. Do you think a simple page or two with the product, graphics, information on the product, uses, and a few testimonials, along with contact information, is a waste? I guess that constitutes a website, so I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do yet. That was a question from Joan. Well, Joan, fortunately, it's possible to have a real website for very little money. Domain registration will be about $10 per year through a registrar such as GoDaddy.com. And while my preference for web hosting is a company such as Bluehost.com for about $100 per year, GoDaddy offers low-cost hosting for about $30 per year. You'll get an email address and hosting for that price. If you pay a little extra, there are design tools you can use to set up the site. It's a good option for someone who wants to do all the work personally. Just having an email address is a big plus. Running a business with an AOL or Yahoo or Hotmail address tells the world that it's not really a very big company, and it sends a message that it's not really a very serious company either. If you choose GoDaddy for hosting, take care at the checkout process because the company offers a lot of extra features that, if selected, push the price well over what Bluehost would charge. If you need the extra features, and it appears you do not, then Bluehost would be the better deal. And Rick had a question about Ubuntu. Some months ago, he said, I downloaded Ubuntu and tried to install it on my TCR computer. No luck. I burned a disk and tried it on my son's old e-machine. No luck. I also tried Xbuntu on both machines. No luck. Finally, I requested the Ubuntu CD from them and received 9.04 a couple of weeks ago. Tried it on my son's computer. No luck. I am hesitant to install it on my TCR. Is there a possibility that it will mess up my machine? Well, I would rate that as possible, but unlikely. There are two options. Install within the Windows file system, which will add an Ubuntu folder to the existing directory structure, and install the Grub bootloader. Or you can repartition the disk, which installs Ubuntu in the second partition, and then installs the Grub bootloader. The first method is the safer of the two, but both methods do tinker with the master boot record. Errors there would cause the computer not to boot but these errors can usually be fixed by rewriting the master boot record with the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows. Link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Speaking of Ubuntu, despite the many improvements in version 9.10 of Ubuntu Linux called Karmic Koala, I really can't recommend downloading it or installing it. Features that worked in the previous version, 9.04's Jaunty Jackalope, no longer work. In addition, some applications are missing, and restoring them will require downloading and installing individual packages because they seem no longer to be available via the Synaptic Package Manager or from Ubuntu's new software center. And applications are slow. I'm beginning to think Ubuntu Vista. What a disappointment. In earlier versions of Ubuntu, I discovered that I liked the visual effects and turned them on. Under Karmic Koala, they're turned off, and there's no way to turn them back on. I turn them on, the system tells me it can't enable them. I then tried the middle step. No joy there either. I could enable either set of features on the same machine in the earlier version. And Windows 7 has no problem running all of the arrow effects on the same dual-boot computer. What did Ubuntu do to break this? Or is the problem caused by a lack of appropriate video drivers? At this point, I don't yet know. Grub, the grand unified bootloader, continued to show Ubuntu 9.04 on its menu. To update this, I plan to open the KGrub editor and edit the file. 
It was nowhere to be found and didn't seem to be available via any package manager. So I opened the file in a plain text editor and manually typed the new information in. Although those kinds of slip-ups were annoying, what really got my attention was the speed of the system. Saying it's lethargic would be needlessly kind. On an Intel Core Duo 2.26 GHz system with 3 GB of RAM, Karmic Koala crawls from one screen to the next instead of snapping. And Firefox? Oh, it is unusable under this version. It's that slow. Firefox is normally somewhat slow on Linux, but taking several seconds to switch from one tab to the next is way too slow by any standard. Fortunately, Opera is available for Linux, and it is considerably faster. Whether the problem is Ubuntu, or more likely the lack of current video drivers, Karmic Koala simply is not acceptable right now, and I'm not going to upgrade the desktop system to version 9.10 until something gets fixed. There's not an easy way to roll back the change on the notebook computer. If I could, I would do that immediately. In short circuits, as much as I like Google and as many Google products as I use, there are times when I wonder just how much Google knows about me and whether that's good or not. My latest internal conversation began when I started using Google Voice. Voice gave me a phone number. When someone calls that number, I can have the call redirected to my home phone, my cell phone, both phones, or neither phone. Voicemail messages are recorded, transcribed, and sent to my email address. I can record any inbound call. Add this to Google Mail, Calendar, Reader, and all of the other services I use, and you'll begin to understand my concern with what Google knows about me. You know, the East German Stasi reputedly had one employee for about every 150 citizens. The Stasi would have loved Google. This is not in any way to compare Google to the Stasi, but only to suggest that Google must take security and privacy very seriously. And Google now has at least a partial response. Starting this week, Google has made available a dashboard service that allows you to see what Google has in its records. Europeans have been more concerned about this than Americans, so Google used a privacy conference in Spain to announce the dashboard. Visit it, and you'll see Google's records for your Gmail account, Picasa web album, web history, checkout, YouTube, voice, and reader. Although you can change some privacy settings, you have only minimal control over the information itself. Most of the information was already available from each application, but Dashboard puts it all in one location. If you'd like to see your information, you can use the link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that'll take you to the Dashboard, which is, by the way, www.google.com forward slash dashboard. PayPal has been working on a new service that will allow developers to use the service in their applications without having to do quite so much work, and without having to force visitors to go to the PayPal website. If you've ever tried to integrate PayPal into a shopping cart, you know how much effort it can take. So this is going to be a welcome change. The new Application Programming Interface, or API, will allow developers to write programs in a way that use PayPal for payments, but keeps users inside the application. Currently, payments are processed on the PayPal site which then links back to the calling application. The API will also allow people who are not PayPal members to sign up for the service within the application and to make payments to multiple recipients in a single transaction. Yet another new feature will allow for transactions such as paying salaries to employees. 
Expecting continued growth in mobile devices, PayPal is making a lot of changes that will make it possible to use the service on smartphones. Expect all of those to be rolled out next year. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.